0: Everyone, Matt here. Uh, so I mentioned a couple weeks ago in the intro to the Ashes episode uh, that War Machine is going to increasingly center on uh, radical theology, though though not being limited to it. Uh, in fact, I, I guess I'll just mention this now: uh, we have some upcoming interviews that I'm I'm really excited about. We're going to be talking to Ed Simon about his recently published book on demonology. It's titled Pandemonium. And it's fucking gorgeous. Like, if you like books, you should just go and get one right now. Um, it's funny, the other day, Justin and I were, were talking about it, and we probably got too excited about the, uh, the quality of the paper. Um, it, it's very good paper. <laughs> we all have our fetishes, right? Um, and then the following week, we're going to talk to Andrew McLuhan, who's the grandson of the legendary Marshall McLuhan. Uh, not too long back, he started the McLuhan Institute, So we're going to talk to him about uh, what it means to inherit that legacy and some ideas that are central to McLuhan's work as well, I'm sure. Uh, Back to the radical theology stuff. The guest for this month's scholar seminar, which happened last night incidentally, was War Machine's very own Petra Carlson, who gave a really interesting talk on the topic of activist art and radical theology. Besides the monthly scholar seminars, one of the benefits, well, there are several, but one of them at the acolyte level is access to mid-month mini lectures on whatever the topic happens to be for that month. Uh, this month we decided to unlock that content just to give folks a sense for you know what it's all about and Justin suggested that we publish that here, so that's what you're going to hear next. So here's the short talk I gave, which was, uh, as I say in the talk, really meant to just kind of tee up the topic uh, the scholars seminar with Petra. All right, peace. Well, welcome to the mid-month lecture for March 2022. Uh, As you may already know, our first two seminars centered on Thomas Altizer and Mary Daly, uh, two important figures in the tradition of radical theology broadly considered. Uh, This month, instead of focusing on a particular thinker or a specific text, we're going to be exploring an intersection, in this case between art and activism within a radical theological framework. To help conjugate these elements i'll be borrowing quite a bit from crockett and robin's chapter on art from religion politics and the earth radical theology and new materialism it's a very good book by the way Uh, which paints albeit in very broad strokes uh, a certain picture of how art developed from antiquity to the modern period this somewhat abbreviated story will help to lay some groundwork for our upcoming seminar with dr petra carlson and That's really my goal here. I think it makes a lot of sense to begin by saying something about the relation of art to theology, or of art to religion, a relationship which is undoubtedly as old as art and religion themselves. It's not important now to dig too deeply into an archaeological exploration of that idea, but I can't resist mentioning the so-called Venus figurines that have been discovered in great numbers across Europe and Eurasia. You've probably seen these. There are different theories on what the function of such objects might have been, but they are nonetheless widely believed to be representations of different kinds of spirits, whose function was to help and protect, as goddesses of the underworld, as helpers during hunting, and as sovereigns of the land and of natural forces, including of course fertility. Most, I believe, are also familiar with the animalistic features of the Upper Paleolithic period, famous cave paintings and so on, which were, among other things, almost certainly manifestations of a more animate and animalistic religious scene, if one wants to call it that. Already here we're confronted with the materiality of religion as art, or artifacts, residues of culture shaped by religious imagination. At the same time we might consider the possibility of a mutual determinability, whereby culture and social imagination are shaped through acts of artistic production. Uh, I'll touch a little bit more on this later. So at this point in history, uh, or rather prehistory, any strict differentiation between art, magic, and religion would not yet have been realized. It's only much later in the mutual formation of art and religion as discrete forms that art will come not only to represent religious ideas but it will be the formal and politically sanctioned rituals of religion that produce the masterpieces emblematic of those cultures. Eventually, the production of art becomes largely indissociable, and a near-direct expression of a religio-political edifice animated by the age-old desire for power and dominance, mastery and transcendence. It's worth noting the distinction that was eventually established between magic and art is itself an artifice, a tenuous one that required a deliberate means of control so as to prevent the unruly powers of creation, which is to say chaos, from disseminating too widely. By the time language entered history, its masters were already priests and sorcerers, coordinating the multiplicity of sacred realms with that of sacred rites. As Horkheimer and Adorno explain in The Concept of Enlightenment, art and magic share the postulation of a self contained sphere removed from the context of profane existence, within which special laws prevail. Just as the sorcerer begins the ceremony by marking out from its surroundings the place in which the sacred forces are to come into play, each work of art is closed off from reality by its own circumference. Thus the very renunciation of external effects, by which art is distinguished from magical sympathy, binds art only more deeply to the heritage of magic, and this relation Either disavowed or simply forgotten, nevertheless necessitates the political capture of elemental power in art, expressed in religious forms. And on it went for quite a long while in the Western world. Art labored in the service of religion until the European Enlightenment, when philosophers and scientists began thinking of God as a great designer, whose creation operated according to universal natural laws of reason. God was the artist, and human art, simply a reproduction of divine nature. Then, in the early 19th century, Immanuel Kant's critique of judgment inaugurated a shift in the understanding of religion and art. According to Kant, beautiful art, artistic genius, and nature conspire, and together express a purposiveness, or goal-oriented behavior, even if what such a goal might be is indeterminable. This idea of an impulse within both man and nature to strive—whether blindly or not—towards some ultimate purpose, fueled the Romantic movement in Germany and elsewhere. Partly a reaction to the disruptive effects of the Industrial Revolution and the scientific rationalization of nature, Romanticism emphasized individualism, spontaneity, and intense emotion as authentic sources of aesthetic experience the primacy that was placed on experiences often associated with religious observance, especially that of the sublime, horror, and awe, again underscores the shifting boundaries between art and religion. Indeed, philosopher of religion Mark C. Taylor explains how, during the 1790s, art displaced religion as an expression and indication of spiritual values. What's most important to understand is how the philosophy of Kant and the experimentation and adoption of new forms of media during this period led to a general breakdown of representation. Modern art thus becomes defined by its various means of expressing the truth of non-representation. There is, of course, much more to say about the various movements, figures, and themes within 20th century art, as well as the backdrop for these things, but I think this is a really good place to stop in the story. The final piece I think is important to mention is the influence of Nietzsche, for whom art is the highest expression of man who must replace God. This liberatory dimension of Nietzsche is seized upon to justify the transgressive anti-art actions of the late 20th century avant-garde. So, so far the story I've been telling has been largely archaeological and descriptive. But I'd like to finish with a very modest and tentative attempt at something constructive. Among the readings provided for this month's seminar is a chapter from Mark C. Taylor's 1984 publication, Ering. In it, Taylor describes the death of God as a multivalence phenomenon best considered as a network of interrelated theological concepts in need of radical reconsideration. God, man, history, and the book. For Taylor, the death of God is coincident with the disappearance of the self, the end of history, and the closure of the book, each of which mirrors the others. Taylor's atheology, while undoubtedly an important contribution to radical theology, as well as arguably the high watermark for the deconstructive turn within radical theology, I believe it's nevertheless hopefully inadequate to marshal the forces necessary to effectively counter the most reactive elements present in politics and culture today. Undecidability must ultimately give way to decision, and theology must eventually return to its constructive task. The prophetic no of radical theology, both important and necessary, ought always to remain counterbalanced with an equally vibrant and gleaming affirmative edge. To theologize with a hammer necessitates not only the relentless smashing of idols, but it also entails the possibility if not the demand, for constructing new concepts, techniques and the building of new worlds upon the ruins of the one that is presently passing away. This I believe is the most urgent challenge for radical theology today. As a first step toward a constructive proposal, modest as it may be, I ask what it would mean to mirror Taylor's fourfold deconstructive project outlined in airing, to produce its inverse image. Such an inversion, unlike the Enlightenment substitution of God with man, and rather than constituting a simple reversal, whereby the death of God becomes the death of the death of God, such an inversion would remain faithful to the finality of that event, while at the same time recognizing it as always in process. A tremendous event still on the way, still wandering, yet to arrive, as Nietzsche took pains to describe it. What might come into view by placing a mirror in relation to Taylor's own series of mirrors? Picking up the thread where Erring left off. According to Taylor, the closure of the book makes possible the opening of the text that he goes on to describe. Similarly, what if the disappearance of the self were reflected to become the body of the apparition, and the end of history was similarly reflected to become a history of non-origins? While currently underdeveloped, such reflections could become a means to channel currents either in or adjacent to radical theology already underway, as articulated by such thinkers such as Petra Carlson, Jeff Robbins, Clayton Crockett, uh, Catherine Keller, and others. Already a theological variety of change and becoming, the radical process theology I have in mind resonates with the chaotic energetic forces that organize life and art. Indeed, it is art that enables chaos to appear as sensation and intensity, and to produce various effects at various distances. If, as I suggested earlier, there is ultimately little difference between magic and art, then activist art is essentially a form of sorcery, with the potential to unleash, intensify, and celebrate the creative and destructive impact of vibratory forces on bodies, collectives, and on the Earth itself. announcing a life to come.